0: Good morning. We are going to be continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians today. And some of you might say, "Uh, what do you mean continuing? Because we spent three weeks kind of talking about the vision of the church. Well, when I came here in December, uh, that was the the sermon that I gave you guys. I started with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we covered the whole chapter. And one of the questions Craig asked was, well, if we hired you, where would you go from here? I'd say, well, next week, we'll pick it up with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But I thought, well, you know, the first few weeks, uh, I wanted to kind of share my vision with you guys, my vision for the church where I see us going and, and where we go from here. But it's, it's kind of amazing. I, I didn't plan it this way, but the, the insight that we're going to get from this passage, this isn't one of the most theologically rich passages in all of Scripture, uh, chapter 2, but it is incredibly insightful. It, it's going uh, it, to play a huge part in how we carry out our vision. It actually fits perfectly with what we've been talking about. But to start with, what I thought I'd, I'd ask you guys to do is to think about somebody, in your mind, think about somebody who has had a positive impact on your life. There's probably just a, a small handful of people who have had a, a lasting positive impact on your life. Maybe for some of you that would be um, a, a teacher or something, uh, maybe, a, maybe even a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a parent. Uh, maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was just somebody who was willing to be your friend when it felt like nobody else was willing to be. And as I look back on my own life, I, I, I can think of two, may, maybe three guys who just had a huge impact on my life, a positive impact on my life. And the first one was Pastor Steve Larson, who was the pastor who was teaching when I when I first put my trust in Jesus. Uh, see, I, I grew up in a church where every, faith was just kind of the answer to everything. If you had any questions, the answer was, well, just believe. You don't, you don't need to know the answer to that. Uh, just believe. And for me, personally, that, that just wasn't enough. And so I grew up kind of somewhere between an atheist and an agnostic. I, I just had so many questions, and I figured, well, you know, I, I'm not going to believe in something that I I don't understand and I want to understand before I believe. Well, Pastor Steve, he he was amazing. He he was the first pastor who was willing to sit down with me and handle my questions. He he, he invested in me personally. And because he was willing to invest in me personally, he, he made a huge impact on my life. He's, he's impacted hundreds and hundreds of people. He's, he's got a really successful ministry down in Southern California now. Uh, when, when I went there, they were having one service. Now they're up to four services every weekend. Uh, and that's because he's the type of guy who's willing to invest in people. And so he had a huge impact on my life. Another person who had a, a big impact on my life was Dr. Barry Leventhal at the seminary that I, uh, that I graduated from. See, when I moved from, from Las Vegas to North Carolina, uh, that's a long trip the reason I went there was because Norman Geisler was running the show there. He he was the main teacher there. And I thought, you know, this is somebody, I'd I'd really love to have him make an impact on my life. And so I I went to seminary thinking, you know, I'm going to learn philosophy and apologetics and I'm going to learn how to win arguments because if I can just come up with the right argument, of course people will believe, right? Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way, but while I was in seminary, uh, Dr. Leventhal, was one of those guys who was willing to invest in me. And, and, and what I saw in him was this shepherd's heart, just a heart to, to love people. He, he loved the Lord so much, and because he loved the Lord so much, it really poured out into how he related to people. And the, the thing that got me so much about him was that you know he, he was at a, you know, retirement age, around retirement age, and he had chronic back problems. He was the starting center for the UCLA football team back in the 60s. And uh, as a result, his back, is he's, he's really got some serious back problems now. Uh, in chronic pain, he, he can't make the pain go away for years. And it would be easier for him to just lay in bed all day, but instead he's willing to invest in people. He was willing to invest in me. And so uh, Dr. Geisler had, had a minimal impact on my life, but really the person in seminary who had the biggest impact on my life was Dr. Leventhal because he invested in me. Now as we continue our study of first Thessalonians over the coming weeks, uh, this is really an appropriate study because what we've been doing we've been talking about the vision of our church and our goal uh, and, and our vision of course is to do what it's to to know Christ and to make him known that's that's the vision of this church to know Christ and to make him known and so our goal here is that by the end of this year I, I think that we can reach 20 people with the love of Jesus that's Less than 0.01% of the unchurched population, by the way. Definitely doable. But how are we going to be successful in doing that? By impacting people. By having an impact in people's lives. A positive one. Now we know that Paul had a, a tremendous impact in his ministry in Thessalonica. He had a, had a huge impact on the, on the Christ followers there. But Why? Why did he have such an impact on them? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Now, we should remember that uh, Paul told us that the church in Thessalonica was, was also having a huge impact. Paul had an impact on them, and as a result, they were having an impact on the community and the communities around them. Uh, Paul, was, Paul was praising them for that. He was giving them all kinds of praises for their progress. He was like a father watching a child taking its first steps. He, he was proud of these guys because they were making the impact on others that he had had on them. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, uh, Paul wrote, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Christ Jesus in the presence of our God and Father. So this work of faith, this labor of love, and steadfastness of hope were praiseworthy in Paul's opinion. And then he'd go on to say in verse 6, he said, You also became imitators of us, that is, of Paul and his team of uh, missionaries. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So, so they had become imitators of Paul. Paul was imitating the Lord. So they became imitators of Paul and the Lord in their ministry, despite difficult circumstances, despite tribulation. Remember also that Paul had been run out of the city of Thessalonica. Uh, He had experienced persecution uh, in the middle of him trying to get the uh, Thessalonians grounded in their faith. So he didn't get to spend as much time there as he wanted. But there's an application here. Remember, we, we know that he was there somewhere between three weeks and three months. He wasn't there very long. But he made a huge impact in a very short amount of time. And you might think, well, how am I going to make an impact on people unless, you know, I've got years to work with? Well, that's not necessarily always the case. You don't always need years. Paul only had somewhere between a few weeks and a few months, and it made a huge impact on them. So as we continue into the second chapter, what we're going to see is a defense of Paul's ministry while he was in Thessalonica. And there's no question that after he had gone, questions probably arose There were rumors. Things were being said. The people who had started following Jesus started hearing some of these rumors probably, like, was Paul really on the up and up? The Jews who had persecuted Paul and Silas were taking advantage of the fact that he had just up and left very abruptly. And so what they were most likely doing, what we see in our text is what they were most likely doing is what we would call, in our day and age, a smear campaign. You know, when the politics uh, are, are in full swing and people are saying this about that guy and that about that guy, and it, it's a smear campaign, so that's probably what was going on here. So keep all that in mind uh, as we continue in our study here, and I, I thought we would be able to cover the first 12 verses of, uh, of this chapter, but uh, as I got to, to really studying it, I thought, well, I, I want to get everybody out of here before dinner today. So uh <laughs> so we'll cover the first 3 verses today and we're just going to talk about some of the insights um that Paul gives us here. So he continues writing in First Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So Paul starts off by saying that the fact that he and his ministry team had come to them was not in vain. And this word vain is is really interesting. Uh, basically what it means is empty or empty-handed. For example, when Jesus is, um, is giving the parable of the vineyard, uh, he says they took him, in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 3, they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That word empty-handed is the same word that gets translated vain in our passage today. So, in one sense of the word, it can mean that Paul and his team of missionaries uh, didn't come to Thessalonica with nothing. They weren't empty-handed. To the contrary, they had something very, very valuable, right? They had the gospel. So, in one sense, it means that. But in another sense, it can also mean that they didn't come to Thessalonica for nothing, there was a purpose for them being there. So they didn't come with nothing, and they didn't come for nothing. He says it was not in vain. But, Paul says, it's a contrast, make note of that. But, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Now, it's kind of humorous, if you, if you know the background here. It's kind of humorous that Paul would say that we were suffering and mistreated. Uh, Those are kind of understatements of the year because as we look at the book of Acts and what Luke tells us about what happened in Philippi, uh, to, to say that they were suffering and mistreated is really, really, just putting it mildly. In Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to 25, Luke records, the crowd rose up together against them, against Paul and his team of missionaries, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them, to be beaten with rods. This is kind of like what we see in, in a lot of Asian countries today, where they do canings, uh, where they, they strip them down to basically nothing, and they get beaten with these rods on their bare flesh. So Luke continues. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them, Paul and his team of, of missionaries, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, the jailer, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So to say, we suffered and were mistreated, that's kind of like saying it's chilly in the Arctic, right? I mean, it's, it's really, really uh, an understatement. But the first principle that we can get from this is that if you're going to have a life that impacts others for the gospel, the way that God has called you to, you need to expect adversity. You need to expect adversity. And you know, one of the biggest objections that people have to the very existence of God is the fact that suffering is something that permeates our existence. And I think that what happens is, especially in our culture, we get this idea that suffering is always a bad thing, that there's nothing good about suffering at all. And even some of the most devout followers of Jesus, they almost get superstitious about it, thinking, you know, if, if I'm good, God will, God will bless me and, and good things will happen to me. Uh, and if I'm bad, of course, then, you know, then, then I'll expect suffering. But here's the thing what, what happened with, with Job's friends? Kind of the exact same thing. See, Job was, was suffering. And so his friends come to him and, and they're, they're keeping him company in the midst of his suffering. And they're saying, hey, man, you've got to figure out what you did wrong. Because obviously you have messed up and you've made God mad. So the reason that you're suffering is because you did something wrong. But that's not the case, of course. Job did nothing wrong. In fact, the book tells us that he was a righteous man. If anything, it had, to do, it had everything to do with the fact that he was a righteous man. That was the cause of his suffering. Now as we read through the book of Acts, we see that as the apostles and and their followers are proclaiming the gospel message, they're they're facing extreme persecution. They're suffering too. In Acts chapter 5, we see the apostles getting flogged for proclaiming the gospel. How do they react? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They went on their way from the presence of the council, that is the council of the temple, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so what we see here is that Paul and Silas had undergone similar circumstances in Philippi. They had been beaten. They had been thrown into prison. And again, how did they react? How did they react? By singing hymns. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of being mistreated, after getting beat up. Let's face it, they were beat up. What are they doing? They're praising God. They're praising God. Now, can you imagine what would happen if we were able to do the same thing? If we were to expect adversity, to anticipate adversity, and if we would learn that it's in those situations that we can rejoice. That we can rejoice in a situation that's bigger than us. Because you know what? That's, that's when God shows up. That's when he comes in and really makes himself seen clearly, is in the midst of suffering. And if you've ever suffered, if you've ever gone through something that's bigger than you are, something that you just cannot handle, you know that that's a time when you are drawn so close to the Lord. So if we could just learn to praise God and rejoice in Him, not in spite of our circumstances, but because of our circumstances. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me say that again. Don't miss this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So rather than seeing persecution as an outpouring of God's wrath, Paul saw persecution as a sign of blessing. He saw it as a sign that he was on the right path. The fact is, you can be following right after the Spirit and find yourself in difficult, trying situations. Everybody's familiar with Psalm 23, right? Psalm 23, verses 3 and 4. David writes, He restores my soul. Get this. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So did you catch that? The path of righteousness leads right to the heart of the valley of the shadow of death. The fact is that as, as followers of Jesus, we don't fly under the enemy's radar. We don't. We've got a big target on our backs. And Paul knew that. And that's, I think, why he was so willing to just get up and, and go. But see, the question isn't why, why do bad things happen to good people the real question is why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. Without Jesus, I'm, I'm a bad person. I am. God sees the best that I can offer as a filthy rag without Him. That is good. He, he, he takes the best that I have to offer and He turns it into something of infinite worth to Him, something that He loves and cherishes. Something that's pleasing to him. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. So the real question isn't why, why, do, good things, or why do bad things happen to good people? The question is why do, why do good things happen to bad people? So the first principle, again, is that if you want to live a life that impacts others for the gospel, expect adversity. And you might say, well, that, that's Paul. You know, he's, he's different than me. He, he's a really bold guy. I mean, this guy was willing to get in your He was willing to get in Peter's face, and Peter was a rough guy. So Paul was a bold guy, but me, not, you know, I, I'm not so bold. Well, Paul did have a tendency to be bold sometimes. Uh, he went from this situation in, in Philippi straight to Thessalonica. But you know what we tend to do when situations arise where we feel like um, it's just too big for us to handle? We tend to be like a a turtle withdrawing into its shell. We we tend to just kind of withdraw from from church and from social social situations. We say, I I just need a little bit of time to, to catch my breath. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not retreating. He's not backing off. He endured this severe beating and imprisonment. And after getting done with that, he rallies up the troops and says, let's go. We're going to Thessalonica. And I don't think that this is just a case of him saying, thank you, sir. May I have another? I don't. Did he know that it was going to happen again in the next town, or did he anticipate it? I'm sure that he figured it would, but on his own, honestly, Paul was a lot like you and me. He he wasn't that brave. After all, what what does he do when he sees Stephen uh, about to be killed? He participates, but not directly. He says, "Let me hold your coats, you guys. All of you who want to who want to kill this guy, I'll just I'll hold your coats." He's a little bit of a chicken. See, I, and I'm a chicken too. I, ask my wife. I, I don't like to, uh, to experiment or do things with, uh, have new experiences. When we go to a restaurant, I'll, I'll order the same thing for years. I, I'll be too much of a chicken to try anything else on the menu. So, so I'm a chicken. <laughs> but Paul's boldness, and our boldness in proclaiming the gospel, see, it can't come from within ourselves. Paul found his boldness in the Lord, he found it in God. That, that's it. Other than that, he, he was just as big a chicken as, as me. He even admits it from time to time. When he wrote to the, to the Corinthians, he admits that when he started proclaiming the gospel to them, he did so with much fear and trembling. That's what he wrote in First Corinthians chapter two verse three. "Much fear and trembling. He was scared. He was a chicken, just like me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. So see, Paul would be bold, but on his own, he wasn't always that bold. So I think that we can always, I think that we can all relate to Paul to some extent. We would have been scared too. And many of you who want to share the gospel with your friends and with your neighbors and co-workers and with your family, you probably have the same sense of fear that Paul had. Whether that's the fear of offending somebody or the fear of of being hurt. Yeah, we can relate to Paul. If you're trying to find the courage within yourself, you know what? You're just never going to find it. Paul says his, his trust was in the Lord. His boldness came from the Lord. See, people, some people are going to react to this fear by saying, well, instead of preaching the gospel message, what I'll try to do is I'll, I'll try to, to live a life that shines. And I'll, I'll just let my actions speak for themselves, and, and my actions will, will get their attention. And so really what, what, this end, what ends up happening is you live a good life, but you don't, um, you, you don't find the boldness to, to preach the gospel. There's a famous saying by St. Francis of Assisi who said, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, th- there is something to that, and we're going to come back to that. But guys, do you, do you guys remember, any of you guys remember the first time you asked for a girl's phone number? I, I, I mean, the first time that you did something really brave and you thought, Man, that girl's never going to give me her phone number, or, or for, for you girls, uh, I, that guy is never going to ask me out. And so you, you, go, you go up to her, and you finally muster up the courage, and what do you say? What do you, what do you think she would say if you said, can I have your phone number, and if necessary, use numbers? <laughs> That's kind of the same thing, but, but like I said, we're going to come back to what St. Francis of Assisi said, because there is something to that. But see, what happens if, if you just want to live a good life and let your life speak for itself? What happens is you steal God's glory. You steal God's glory because people see you and they say, wow, that Toby, he's a nice guy. He always seems to do the right thing. You can trust him. He's not going to steal. You know, he lives a really upright life. And if I'm just letting my life speak for itself, that's as far as they're going to see. That's all they're going to see. No. We, we, we need to articulate the gospel. If we refuse to speak, we're stealing God's glory. See, the, the gospel isn't that difficult to articulate. What's difficult is finding the courage to articulate it. No, it, it's easy. If you, if you believe in Jesus, if you put your trust for salvation in him, you'll be saved from the penalty of your sins. Man, that's easy. That's, that's one sentence. I mean, and I can think of a lot longer sentences than that, right? That's easy. But finding the courage, that's, that's something different. It requires trusting completely in God. And you know what? The more you practice doing this, the more you practice putting your trust in God, the easier it becomes, the more natural it feels. You won't feel like you're being taken that far out of your comfort zone. So, principle number two is that if you're going to live a life that impacts others for the gospel, you have to find your courage in the Lord. Seek it in him and in him alone. Paul continues, writing in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. So there there are three things here. This This is the reason, these are the reasons that Paul was able to be so bold. Now, some people might appear to be bold. You might say, you know, these guys who ride their bikes around town and come to my door to, to talk to me about, uh, about their religion, you know, they seem really bold too. No, they're not. not. Not the way that they need to be. See, the first reason that Paul tells us that he was able to be bold is that his message didn't come from error. See, he didn't believe that he was going to be a God of his own universe someday if he just goes to enough doors and if he just converts enough people. And those people who come to your door, that's what they're working for. So their, their motivation isn't necessarily to please God. It's more, I've got to do this so that I'm a good enough person to get this reward of, of being God, being my own God of my own universe. That's the message of the number one cult in the United States right now. And while they've got this, they, they, they do come across as bold. It's, it's ultimately for their own glory. See, in our day and age, we've got all kinds of gurus and prophets and psychics who are really just teaching a bunch of garbage. They might seem bold, but their boldness comes from something that is in error. I mean, the 9 11 terrorists, were they bold? I think what they did was pretty bold, but their boldness came from error. Sure, they were willing to die for something that wasn't true. That's that's worth nothing. See, the people who drove Paul and his team out of Thessalonica were undoubtedly saying that Paul's teachings were false. They're saying that Paul's teachings were false. But Paul's saying that the first reason that he was bold is because he was not teaching a false message. The second reason that he lists... Uh, is that uh, he, his message didn't come from impurity. And it's really interesting that Paul would bring impurity up. This is a word that uh, that refers to sexual immorality. Uh, his message didn't promote sexual immorality or sexual promiscuity or, or self-indulgence. And if you look around, think, think about all the cults just over the last 50 years or so that you can think of, and what have their ministries, what have these cults been characterized by a lot of the time. Sex. Really. I mean, think about it. Uh, David Kresh and the Branch Davidians. You guys remember them down in Waco, Texas? What was he doing? He, he was having sex with kids, with grown women. Yeah, that, that was part of his message. Uh, Joseph Smith. Believe it or not, that was part of, uh, that was part of his thing. He, he practiced and promoted polygamy, and he even had a 14-year-old wife. That's Impurity. That's impurity, and there's a lot of discussion about, uh, a lot of debate about how many wives he might have actually had. Some say, you know, somewhere around 10 or fewer than 10. Some say as many as 50. The, the average consensus is he had at least 30, 30 wives. So there was some sexual impurity there. Uh, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, he also took a nine-year-old as his wife. A nine-year-old, that's, that's just sick. It's sexually impure. Uh, Jim Jones, same same sorts of things. So what what you're seeing is that there are a lot of groups that promote their beliefs, their false beliefs, with impurity. The list just goes on and on. Was Paul accused of sexual immorality? Apparently he was. That, That seems to be what he's responding to here. After all, Acts chapter 17, verse 4, tells us that while Paul was in Thessalonica, he converted a lot of influential women. So I'm sure that his opponents were ready to take advantage of that. Hmm, look at all those women that Paul took with him. What do you guys think was going on there? And Paul's telling us that his message had nothing to do. It was not characterized by sexual impurity. And so that's the second reason that he could be bold. The third reason that he was able to be bold in proclaiming the gospel message is that he didn't proclaim it by way of deceit. In other words, he wasn't just trying to pull a fast one on them. When I was 14 or 15, I had braces. And um, one of the the problems that my orthodontist ran into was the fact that I had a baby tooth that didn't have an adult tooth underneath it to take the place. And so it, it was really too small for my mouth, and it was making it difficult for my teeth to stay in the right place. And so what he did, he he ended up referring me to this dentist um, to to, to pull the baby tooth out. And what they were going to do, the plan was uh, they would replace it with an implant, which was adult size, so that my teeth could fall into place in in the right place. So anyway, so I go to get my my tooth pulled. And um, he, he numbs me up, pulls it out, and while he's still in my mouth, he says, you know, looking around in here, it looks like you have two other teeth that need to be pulled. You want me to get those while I'm here? wow, I I, I didn't know what to say. Thankfully, my my dad was in the room. Uh, My dad says, well, you know, uh, we'll just get a second opinion on that. And so we went back to my orthodontist within the next week, and we said, he he said I have two other teeth that need to be pulled. Is that true? No. No, he was trying to pull a fast one on you. Man, am, am I thankful that that I didn't just say, oh yeah, go ahead. Because to this day, I would have nothing in, in, in place of where those teeth were, right? So he was pulling a fast one on me. And see, this is something that will completely destroy the credibility of a person or a business. My orthodontist said, I will never send anybody to that guy again. Pulling a fast one on an unsuspecting person will cost you credibility. And Paul knows that that's something that he hasn't done. And so he gives this as the third reason for his boldness. See, everything that Paul has taught them, everything that they've seen, that they've learned from him, it was all on the up and up. There was nothing that he was trying to hide. Our lives need to be the same way. It needs to be on the up and up. Not trying to hide anything. Keeping our credibility strong. So the third principle... For making an impact on people's lives is that if we're going to make an impact on people's lives for the gospel, they have to see that we have credibility. They have to believe that we have pure motives, that we're not trying to just pull a fast one on them. You ever buy a box of cereal, and and you know, it's like this tall, and as soon as you open it, you see that there's like this much cereal in it. You know what I'm talking about? It's because you know in in, in transit it all like, kind of shifted down or whatever. Maybe it started out full, but by the time you get it and you open up the box, it's like halfway full. See, that's the type of thing um, that Paul's saying he didn't do. He's not trying to present something as it isn't in actuality. You know, he felt he needed to defend his credibility, which he had definitely established while he was in Thessalonica. That's the third reason that he was able to proclaim the gospel message boldly to them. The fact is, to an extent, St. Francis of Assisi was right. Our actions have to line up with our words. If our words and our actions contradict each other or have any conflict at all, people are going to have a tough time seeing credibility in our in our message. And this is where this is where sin becomes a serious hindrance to the gospel. We don't believe that We can lose our salvation. So why does the enemy even bother with us? Because sin will be a hindrance to the gospel. See, when an unbeliever sees anything that even remotely appears to be sin in our lives, they will take notice. And that's why sin is serious business. That's why we need to deal with it swiftly. We need to wage war on it. What was the whole purpose in Job's suffering? to get him to sin. That's what Satan was trying to do. Because if Satan could make Job the most righteous guy, if Satan could make Job sin, what kind of a light was he going to be? You can be assured that you'll face temptation to sin, to lose your credibility. Because if adversity doesn't slow your ministry down, and if intimidation doesn't slow your ministry down, believe me when I tell you, That losing your credibility will bring your ministry to a grinding halt. It'll bring you back farther than than square one. So deal with sin. Deal with it swiftly. Take care of it. Be honest with yourself and be honest with others. Deal with it. Identify it and get away from it. That's that's the first key to credibility. The second key is, is to be honest about the implications of the gospel. If somebody says, are you telling me that I'm going to go to hell if, if I don't believe this? Be honest. You don't need to present it as something that it's not. You don't need to be like the cereal box that you know, isn't really what it appears to be. You don't. If somebody says, this is a tough one. We talked about this earlier today. If somebody says, well, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a practicing alcoholic. Can I come to Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, somebody who's a practicing alcoholic can can come to Jesus. Somebody who's uh, living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, yeah, you can come to Jesus just as you are. Am I going to have to change? You will. You'll want to. That's the implication. So don't back down and sugarcoat it to try and get them to believe something that it isn't. And if they ask, what's in it for you? My answer to that is is this, nothing. Nothing's in it for me. I, I don't get brownie points with God. What I get is spending eternity with you. I want you to be there. So let people see that your motives are pure. We need to deal with sin in such a way that it's clear that we have nothing to hide. We need to be honest about the implications of the gospel. Paul's telling us that he's able to speak boldly because he's not speaking from error. That's the content of his message. He's not promoting sexual immorality. That's the consistency of his message. And that he's not just pulling a fast one on him. That's the credibility of his message. His life was lining up with his message. And see, these are the, the same keys that we can use to speaking boldly so that we can impact others around us for the gospel At the beginning, I had asked you guys to to remember somebody or some buddies, some people who had had an impact on your life. And I think if you look at these people who have had an impact on your life, it's pretty probable that they had all these things. They had these same characteristics. I remember that the church at Thessalonica, the, the, the body of believers there, they were imitating Paul. And so what that means is that they too were boldly proclaiming the gospel, keeping their, their motives and their message pure. And as we reach out to Linwood, or wherever we are, to those around us, I think it's important that we do the exact same thing. Number one, anticipate adversity. Number two, have the boldness to speak in the face of adversity by trusting in God. And number three, keep our credibility intact by having our life line up with our words. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have saved us from who we once were. And that you will save anybody who comes to you in faith. Believing in your son Jesus and his work on Calvary. We thank you, Lord, that it's it's really that simple. And Lord, I understand there are a lot of factors that go into communicating that clearly to our friends and family and loved ones who don't know you. But I pray that you will teach us to trust you and that our boldness will be found in you. Lord, may our our lives be a light that shines so that our message has credibility with people, so that they will really believe that we love them because we see them with your eyes, Lord. We pray that you will help us to impact this city for your glory, Lord, not for ours, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.